Pao Yu scanned their faces carefully, but he could not see his spinning girl amongst them. They had not driven far, however, when he caught sight of her at the end of the village. She was standing watching for him beside the road, a baby brother in her arms and two little girls at her side. Pao Yu could not repress a strong emotion on seeing her, but sitting there in the carriage, there was not much he could do but gaze back at her soulfully. And soon, as the carriage bowled along at a smarter pace, Artie was lost to sight forever. everybody this is rereading the stone uh, this is Kevin Wilson joined as always by William Jones will how's it going today very well thank you how are you doing Kevin? Uh, another great day uh, I'm really excited for chapter 15 at Watermoon Priory she Fung finds how much profit may be procured by the abuse of power and Chin Jung discovers the pleasures that are to be had under the cover of darkness. How about we do a recap first, and then we kind of uh, share some general impressions. Sure thing. Recently, we've been dealing with uh, the aftermath of the death of Qian Shi, one of the, uh, the kind of more important female characters in the story to date. She is a young woman of the... Ning branch of the Jia clan, which is the kind of central family in the story. And two chapters ago, she died. And then in the previous chapter, Xi Feng, who we just mentioned, who's one of the young women of the Rong branch, which is the other major branch of this family, she has been handling a lot of the, the kind of uh, admin and legwork involved in preparing for the funeral. Uh, and in the last chapter, yeah, we spent a lot of time seeing how she how she gets on in that role the answer is she is a very strict taskmaster she's very demanding of all of the household servants and in one scene uh as punishment for one of the servants uh being late for roll call uh she is whipped with a bamboo cane and she's docked one month's wages so we mm. can see that she's very severe and stern mm -hmm. anyway the towards the end of the chapter we finally begin the funeral procession and during the funeral procession there are lots of uh notables and dignitaries along the way paying their respect but one dignitary in particular comes to pay a visit and it's this mm. this royal prince the prince of beijing or like northern peace People weren't expecting him to to be there in person, so it's a great kind of honor for the family. And um, 
we see right at the end of the chapter, he asks to meet Jia Baoyu, who is the kind of central character of the story, who is a um, at this point a teenage boy, and a, and a rather kind of mystical uh, one. Uh, he is uh, quite a unique, unusual character. And the thing that's particularly special about him is that when he was born, they found a piece of jade in his mouth. Uh, and this is a kind of special magical jade with an inscription upon it, um, promising kind of protection from evil spirits to the one who bears it. So that's pretty much where the chapter starts. First, we have the meeting between Bao Yu and the Prince of Beijing, followed by the funeral procession uh, leading to what's called the, the Temple of the Iron Threshold. Um, along the way, Bao Yu and uh, Xi Feng, uh, who we mentioned before, along with one of Bao Yu's friends, another young young man called Qin Zhong, they, they stop off in a local village for a rest. Bao Yu and Qin Zhong were very excited and interested by all of the all of the farming tools and all of the kind of all of the stuff that the villagers have. And during this time, he has this passing encounter with a um, a young woman just a couple of years older than him. And then it's time to go, and he catches this passing glimpse of her as they leave the village. And then we think they never see each other again. From there, they proceed on to the the formal kind of funeral ceremony at the temple. And then after it's done, most of the guests and the family return to the capital. But Xi Feng, uh, Bao Yu and Qian Zhong uh, stay overnight at a nearby priory, Watermoon Priory. And while they're there, a couple of things happen. For Xi Feng, she, um, a favour is asked of her by the, the abbess, the kind of the, the head nun of the priory. Um, she asks Xi Feng to use her her kind of power and influence as a as a wealthy and kind of influential member of a an important noble family. She asks her to use that power and influence to help resolve a, a kind of tricky situation uh, involving a a young woman who has two competing suitors, two competing men, vying for her hand in marriage, and she agrees to do so for a price. And then we also have the story of uh, Qian Zhong, uh, Bao Yu's young friend, um, mm. who is desperately in love with um, a young woman known as Sapientia, who is a, a kind of young nun of the Priory. Mm. Um, and so we get to be see we get to see a bit of their story as well. And then after staying there for a couple of days, they return to the capital, and that's where we leave it. My like my kind of first impression would be that uh, you know last chapter chapter fourteen was really heavy. Uh, There's a lot of great material there, a lot of like deep anthropological, religious, maybe pseudo quasi religious insights. Uh, but it had this this heaviness uh, and a lot of heavy symbolism, and you have the severity of uh, Wang Shifeng's you know like rise to power. Uh, and so the whole chapter seemed to be, you know, like drenched in this kind of uh, dark divisions of, of, of various kinds. And these like these the eerie we remember the eerie uh, white luminescence at the break of dawn. Um, and so this chapter and maybe this is a an, uh, an example of the kind of the the sway and fro, the kind of um, the the 
the rhythmic swinging of mood and temperament between chapters. Because this one is a, even though it's still a part of the funeral, even though the, the, the funeral is still going on, this chapter has a really lighthearted, uh, open air feel to it. It's really uh, it's kind of a, really a, truly a breath of fresh air, even as, you know, uh, Ching Ka-Ching's body is slowly, we, we presume, decomposing. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, both this chapter and the previous one, we, we talked in the past about how some chapters are dreams and some chapters are, you know, very much awake. Mm. Um, so sometimes the narrative is very surreal, kind of dreamlike, and sometimes the narrative is very grounded in reality and the material world. But I think this chapter and the previous one, they don't, they can't, be described in in their whole uh as fitting into either one or the other category they're both mm. a kind of a mixture an intertwining of the interesting of, yeah of dream and reality so so i mean in the previous chapter a lot of the content is about uh wang xifeng um and managing the servants and dividing them up into different you know uh groups with different responsibilities and and, and that's very all you know all very kind of real world ordinary stuff but then, as you said, there is a scene where she goes to grieve for the dead woman, Qin Shi, Qin Ke Qing. And that scene, as you mentioned, is, is very kind of dreamlike, particularly the scene where she arrives in the early morning and the approach to the house is lit with these bright white lanterns and the, the way is lined by servants dressed head to toe in white. Mm. And... It has this very eerie, very uncanny quality to it. And the same is true in this chapter. You know, some of it, I think, is very sort of grounded in reality um, and ordinary, like, material experiences. But there are aspects of it that are, are, are dreamlike as well. So, so it's a, again, it's a jumble of the... It's an interleaving of the, the dream and real realms together. Mm, yeah, so, so maybe the dialectic has progressed and now we, we see uh, a more fluid, uh, yeah, like you say, like a intermingling of, yes, exactly. uh, of these oppositions. I, I would say this chapter is a lot more fun than the last chapter. It, it really felt more lighthearted um, for the most part, uh, maybe because uh, Bao Yu figures so prominently and his um, youthful curiosity and mischievousness is rather infectious, I would say. Yeah, I would agree. But, you know, on another level, who doesn't like a trip to the country? I mean, even if the circumstances uh, aren't, needless to say, ideal, especially Bao Yu really treats this as a kind of miniature vacation yeah absolutely um and it does have that feel to it you know there's um you get the feeling that there are these more serious adult concerns in the background but as insofar as you know so far as Baoyu and Qianzhong are concerned they're just thinking about having a good time and enjoying mm -hmm. themselves yeah and I would say they they figure more prominently than Shifang even though Shifang is also you know, here for all the uh, the action. 
Would you agree with that, or is that overstating the? Uh, no, I think that's true. Case. I think that I think that's the right way to look at it. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about um, this interaction between Bao Yu and uh, the Prince of Beijing. So, so we know that he's a a kind of royal prince by blood. So it seems like there are at least four of these royal princes, each with a name that corresponds to a direction of the compass and each incorporating a, a kind of word for peace. And of them, the Prince of Beijing seems to be the highest. Um, and they're all so kind of ennobled that, you know, they, they're given these titles in the first place because of, you know, ancestors or forebears that rendered kind of great services to the crown. So in a way, they're kind of similar to the Jia clan who, the, you know, the reason for these two great branches is because back in the the mists of, of yore, of years long gone by, there were two individuals, the Duke of Rongguo and the Duke of Ningguo, who provided services. We don't know exactly what they were, but we think probably they they um, they fought well in 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 war. We think um, anyway. So so he's he's described in the previous chapter as an extremely good looking young man, you know, and and the sense I get of him is yeah, rather kind of striking, slightly rakish. Yeah, they say his face is like a, a fine jade. Yeah. And his eyes are like uh brilliant like stars. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's it's quite it's quite a good kind of description of it. Uh, and both he and Bao Yu are described as wearing this kind of incredibly elaborate clothing. Uh there's some of it that I picked out which I just thought was <laughs> kind of worth worth describing. So 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 he's the prince of Beijing, but he's also known as Shui Rong, which I think is his name. Um, so it says, looking up, Bao Yu saw that Shui Rong's princely headgear was embellished by way of mornings with white bands, a white hat pin, and filigree silver wings. As a further token of mourning, his robe, though heavily bordered with a tooth and wave design of rainbow coloured stripes and gold emblazoned with the royal five clawed dragon, was of a white material. It was confined at the waist by a red leather belt studded with green jade. Uh, so, I mean. It, Nice. It does seem to be very kind of elaborate, very, <laughs> very kind of extravagant, you know, um, but but worn with a kind of ease, you know. And he's wearing uh, kind of insignia particular to the royal line. Mm. Um, so he has his own sort of royal name brand apparel that he's sporting. Not bad. And so then the prince and Bao Yu, they have this kind of conversation in the presence of Jia Zheng, uh, Bao Yu's father, who is a very kind of strict Confucian, and we know from previous chapters is rather strict, quite distant as a father, and not at all affectionate or loving to his son, really. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems to have decided long ago that his son is a kind of ne'er-do-well who will never really amount to much. And, um, and so it kind of seems to his great frustration that the prince of Beijing actually really takes to Bao Yu and, and praises him. So he says, I trust I shall not offend you by saying so to your face, he said, but I venture to prophesy that this fledgling of yours will one day sing sweeter than the parent bird. Jia Zhong smiled politely. So, <laughs> so the prince of Beijing is saying, you know, your son is, you know, I think he'll really go on to great things. And Jia Zhong, who, you know, has thinks his son is a good for nothing and a kind of layabout 
it's it just struck me as as kind of as funny because normally parents are pleased to hear people praising their children particularly someone from as kind of someone so illustrious as as uh the prince of beijing in this in this case but no it, it evokes exactly the opposite reaction from his father uh-huh and uh his father also kind of puts a, a disclaimer on the the magical powers uh advertised on Bao Yu's famous jade uh, so yeah. Jia Zhang says, you know, is only alleged to have these powers. We've never put them to the test, um, <laughs> which is a kind of an, a, kind of an interesting comment. Maybe humility, maybe uh, a certain impatience. Well, I mean, let's just like remind ourselves of what the the um, those powers are, because they're said to it's said to repel demons, that kind of thing, isn't it? Oh, it's in chapter eight. Let me just dig it out. And that's going to be relevant, actually, in the next chapter. So it says, dispels the harms of witchcraft, nice. cures melancholic distempers, awesome. foretells good and evil fortune. There we go. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of like wryly sardonic kind of comment um, about not having had the chance to, to, to kind of use its powers. The one thing that he does say um, by way of not necessarily criticism, but uh, recommendation is that he fears that Baoyu may be a bit spoiled or <laughs> at risk of being spoiled. And from what we've seen so far, this does seem to completely hit the nail on the head. Mm -hmm. Although the prince, the prince says that, you know, I was also this way when I was a younger boy, but I, um, I came around in effect. Mm -hmm. And he offers for, uh, for Baoyu to come visit him and to study... Uh, at his complex, he's uh, the prince is very reserved, but he he says that you know lots of very educated men come through my establishment, and so just by being here, you you know your son can improve his education. And so we'll see whether whether that does in fact happen in in um, subsequent chapters. Mm -hmm. So having made this offer, uh, the prince then feels the need to. Uh, give some kind of gift to Bao Yu mm -hmm. because it's it's common on meeting for the first time to to provide a gift. We saw this in chapter seven when both Bao Yu and Wang Xifeng meet Qin Zhong for the first time. And Wang Xifeng is again, she's caught in a similar position, which is she was not expecting to meet him and she does and therefore has no gift prepared. So she sends one of her servants back to essentially back home to find a gift so that they can present it although she feels that the, the gifts that the seven has chosen are a bit stingy in this case the prince of beijing has to make do with something described as a rosary in the in the hawks in the hawks translation and i think that that's about right it's a the chinese is yi chuan nian zhu uh so a string um essentially it's it's a, it's a string of pearls or jewels used for 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 nian sort of mm -hmm. reciting um that kind of thing so it's, it's i think serves a very similar function to to a rosary in in catholicism right right you know it's a a buddhist relic not a yeah catholic <laughs> relic <laughs> oh of course of course no 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 just just uh just because you know rosary we know of as being a a specific catholic thing and then pretty much that's where they leave it then there is a bit of toing and froing about uh whose carriage is going to go mm -hmm. first and in the end, the Prince of Beijing prevails on them to let the 
funeral the the kind of the funeral uh, group proceed first uh, because he says that heavenly concerns take priority over over earthly ones and yeah that's pretty much where they leave it yeah he even mentions the the earthly concerns are literally uh the expression he uses is uh so like uh you know for us you and i still among this uh the dust the mortal dust again so it's again this this image of yeah the busy the kind of world of busyness and dust uh, the the dusty world the busy world of dust something like yeah, that so, but, yeah yeah uh, hawks goes for a less literal uh, translation but I like to kind of yeah to bring out some of the uh, the original because that, that gets back to the some of these images we've seen before and even the expression itself has a bit of that Buddhist the Hong Chen you know the, the red uh, dust yeah the red absolutely. dust that we, we've, we've talked about a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good phrase. It's one that I sort of my eye picked up on as well because absolutely it it touches on both the 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 world of dust, the world of kind of dirt, the material world, which we've talked about before in in reference to the sort of the Buddhist concept, but also it's the world of um, human concerns, like many small affairs keeping you busy you know as opposed to the kind of more grand important affairs of the the spiritual realm or the you know mm-hmm. the 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 eternal world that exists outside of the human one outside of the you know outside of the material realm having kind of left it there mm-hmm. the um the funeral procession continues on and the place they're headed to is this temple of the iron threshold, uh, Tie Kan Si, which, mm-hmm. we, which we've come across in the previous chapter. This is where Qin Shi's body will be laid to rest. And I think here the, the iron, this idea of the iron threshold, I've been thinking about this. Uh, we associate iron with the autumn season. It's again, it's part of the, the Wuxing correlative system. And I think the idea is that, at least one of the ideas here is that uh, iron is unwielding. It's inflexible in the same way that, you know, once you're dead, you're dead. This is the, the final judgment. There's no coming back from the dead, usually. So is the sense that when you cross the threshold, <clears throat> there is no return from I th- it? I know? think so, right? It's it's kind of a, a final threshold. It's not between, you know, seasonal phases. It's not between one uh, element of life to the next element of life. It's your final uh, transitional moment. That sounds right. Yeah, and so uh, I think that's one way to, because again, that's also going to come up uh, in the next chapter. So, so as the procession is going, um, Xifeng invites Bao Yu to come and join her in her carriage, and they're riding along, uh, laughing and chattering in the mm-hmm. hawks. When one of uh, Xifeng's servants asks if she wants to stop to, you know, stretch her legs, have a have a brief rest before they continue. Uh, in a nearby village. So she decides that, you know, yes, why not? Um, so she, Baoyu, and their servants um, stop in this village. And then Baoyu also sends for Qin Zhong, his, his friend, uh, to come join them. And so the, the three of them and their servants stop in this, we assume, very kind of ordinary, rustic, out-of-the-way village um, along the route nothing kind of special at all 
and so the the building is described as a mao, which is essentially like a thatched hut, something like that. So you kind of get a sense of the the type of building this is. It's not even tiled, uh, which was you know very common for for Chinese traditional architecture. It's simply thatched, so you know just uh, dry grass um, piled up as as the roof. Um, and we hear that. I'll read from the Hawks here. Apart from the barns and outhouses, the farmhouse consisted of little more than a single large room, so that there was nowhere the farmer's womenfolk could go to be out of the way of the visitors. So I think that that's just helpful for understanding the setting. It's really just a single farmhouse, thatched roof, a few outbuildings, but the, the, the house itself is really just one one big room. Um, so it's a real world away from the the scale and luxuriousness of the the Rong mansion, which is many tens, if not hundreds of rooms, connected mm-hmm. by gardens and corridors and, you know, all sorts of grandeur. The contrast cannot be more striking, right? Yeah. And so they're making a... a, a- a brief uh, pit stop. The the expression in the Chinese is da jian, which means literally like to, to hit a point. I don't know if anybody still uses that uh, expression, but apparently it is a, a set expression for like a, a quick snack. Uh, a quick stop, yeah. Stop for a snack while traveling, something yeah. like that. I, I would say that uh, right after the line that you read, I was struck by... Uh, the comment, you know, the sudden appearance in their midst of Shifeng, Bao Yu, and Qin Zhong with their fashionable clothes and delicate city faces seemed to these simple countrywomen more like a celestial visitation than a human one. Yeah, I, I like the Chinese because it's Ji Yi Tian Ren Xia Jiang, which is to say, mm-hmm. few could doubt that these were heavenly people fallen to earth, something like that. Yeah, it seemed as if, yeah, they, they descended from the sky, right? And of course, I mean, we were just seeing a few chap- a few paragraphs before this, a description of um, how elaborate Baoyu's clothing was. And so for your, your average kind of Chinese peasant, the arrival of these three into your midst would be bewildering, really. It had some uh, echoes of, if we remember back in chapter six, when uh, Granny Liu... Uh, was amazed by the, the surroundings and, and the fancy clock waiting for uh, Shifang. She had the same kind of almost religious experience. Yes, yeah, she nearly mistakes one of the servants for Shifang herself. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, the, the chief servant, uh, Pingar, yeah, patience. Pingar, patience yeah. That's how elaborate her dress is. Basically, while Shifang is taking a rest, you know, getting changed, relaxing, Qin Zhong and Bao Yu go kind of charging off to play uh, and explore and so they they get a kind of tour of the of the farmstead and they they kind of hear about what the different pieces of equipment are and uh you know what they're for and 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 all of this kind of thing i don't know why but when i pictured it in my head i actually thought of have you seen those pictures of kim jong-un or kim jong-il like doing (laughs) tours of farms or shops or factories or thing that sort of thing I mean, I definitely had the sense of like, I wondered in the back of my head whether this was the same kind of almost hyper reality that you sometimes experience nowadays 
in China, in other places, where you go to a small village and you're not really sure whether it's actually as quaint as it appears or whether they're putting on a show for you. Oh, so it's a kind of Potemkin village. Right. I, I don't know, like, uh, Bao Yu was having his, like, Marie Antoinette moment and he's... Or whether this was actually how, you know, the peasantry at this time... No, I completely agree with you. There's one bit in, in here that struck me as true, but somehow monumentally patronizing which is um he you know having had the tour he in the hawks he says now i can understand the words of the old poet he said each grain of rice we ever ate cost someone else a drop of sweat Mm -hmm. and uh and the chinese i think is worth quoting as well so the chinese is yeah who knows that the the food on your plate every grain of it is you know comes from uh hard work bitterness suffering you know yeah it was very it did very much feel like sort of rich western kids on gap year kind of feeling um (laughs) or or something a bit along those lines there was there was a, a marie antoinette quality to it okay um and it's a good question whether the author is aware of this, whether he is intentionally injecting this element, whether he or or whether he himself was unaware. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad we're on the same page there. That this is again maybe this is gets back to what you were saying before about the dream quality of uh, this chapter. You know, is this actually how? Uh, agricultural life was or is this a dream of agricultural life because it really seems as if all the imp- the implements are sort of just lying out to be seen mm. and you wonder you know is this a demonstration there's even a, the perfect moment where uh bao yu starts uh kind of messing around with the sewing machine the, yeah. s- the sewing device and and that's the moment when his you know the young uh farm maiden comes and she she stops him because he's a, it would seem that he's at risk of messing up the whole uh, yeah. arrangement which again is his perfect ideal kind of like that's what would happen on your perfect you know uh, jaunt through the countryside i think it's right so it seems to be for um I, I think it's good just to read it so at that moment they came to an outhouse in which was a kung which is the kind of bed heated by fire underneath uh, a kung with a spinning wheel on it. Bao Yu was even more intrigued. That's for spinning yarn with to make cloth out of, said the pages. Bao Yu at once got up on the kung and had just started to turn it when a country lass of 17 or 18 summers came running up. Don't, you'll spoil it! She was shouted at fiercely by the pages, but Bao Yu had already stayed his hand. I'm sorry, I've never seen one before. I was just turning it for fun to see how it works. So, I mean, there's a certain self-awareness, I guess, that he is the kind of blundering clueless rich boy uh who nearly you know through his carelessness um damages something of presumably significant value to to these farmers and so at this moment uh chin jong you know gives him a, a kind of uh, a wink and he's like oh she's a she's a fine looking yeah. uh young maiden <laughs> yeah and so there's a lot of this uh lighthearted uh, back and forth between the two of them in this chapter and it's a it's such a relief from last chapter when it was all just funeral ritual and uh like servants being uh, abused and so on mm. <laughs> i agree so i agree uh, we, i mean we have to remember that Bao Yu and xin jong are, are teenage boys yeah uh, uh, as such 
the thought of sex is more or less constantly on their minds. Yes. And so it's constantly inserting itself. Anyway, she she shows him a bit how it works. Um, and then she's called away by uh, a voice from, from off stage. For some reason, Hawks here, he translates... He gives her a name. Yeah. But in the original, she doesn't have a name. She's, she's only referred to as, I think, just Ariato. Girl 2. Like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so in the Hawks, it's Artie or Artie? I think it's Artie. I think that's it. Yeah. So he's taking which, R, which is two, and then T uh, as a sort of like, diminutive yes. uh, naming naming kind of convention. Which is another one of his, you know, really unique. Hawks is always clever. He's always one step ahead of us. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's a difficult thing to translate because it sounds very strange in English if you say... If you were to have somebody named Girl Two, um, okay. or a Servant Two, really, yeah. yeah. But 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 I guess it's, I guess it reflects something. I I I don't know enough about it to be honest. But it seems to me that at this time in that setting, I don't think there was tremendous value placed on the lives of women in an agricultural sort of setting. I think because. Because the birth rate would have been very high, and it's a quite traditionally patriarchal society in which a daughter is is you know married off, packed off elsewhere, whereas the son is expected to uh, look after his parents when he grows up. So, so parents will always place greater value on having and raising sons than they do on daughters. And we're going to see that in a second, actually, with the name. Of the uh, of the young uh, girl who's being who's being fought over, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, that's another another yeah, kind absolutely. of nice little detail I want to bring out. Uh, but 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 I think that this is yeah, like the fact that she's called girl too is a reflection of the thing that I guess I was observing, which is that when you place much less value on daughters, then you almost think, well. Is there that much point kind of putting in the effort of giving her a name? And uh, and this is something that is kind of true throughout the book. We've noted before that one of the important characters in chapters six and seven is Joel Ray's wife. And she's known only as Joel Ray's wife, even though we don't meet Joel Ray. Um, and you know, we never learn what her own name is. And even uh, Bao Yu is often simply referred to as uh, Arga by various other members of the household the idea being that he is you know the the second son oh interesting of uh jia zheng, jia zheng and and lady wang uh mm. the first son having already uh passed away you know many years before uh yeah. and so maybe it is because you have these th- this emphasis on the family structure these these like relational terms are emphasize more and it isn't necessarily a kind of diminution a kind of uh right it's it's more relational less strictly uh reductive maybe Mm. Uh, i guess how i would i'll try to yeah understand this just to like interrupt this this thing about spinning i i just uh like spinning and weaving i i like went back over the the poems in um chapter five in the dream sequence because i was kind of interested and i think the one that's about i think it's about li wan 
Oh, no, maybe it's about one of the servants. I'm not sure. But there's a reference to spinning in there as well. So you know uh, where they have the the book of the 12 beauties mm -hmm. and they have a picture and then they have a poem. I recall one of the references is to the the non-stopping machine, right? The the booting G. Oh, and that was actually in the context of uh, the the sort of Confucian values that uh, Bao Chai is supposed to embody. So this would be the okay. machine that you know if you are a filial daughter, this machine is you know will not stop on account of your dedication to the family and to uh, productive labor and and so on and so forth. Ah, oh, I see. So that be one way to relate it back. Yeah. So, she's called away, girl two, uh, or RT as she's called by uh, Hawks. She is called away off stage, uh, and before too long, they have to, you know, our party has to pack it up and and move on. And as they say goodbye, Bao Yu looks out for her, but can't see her anywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then just as they're pulling off in the carriage, he sees her standing at the end of the village, watching them go. Yeah, all he could do was gaze back at her soulfully, which is coincidentally what he's really good at doing. So, <laughs> um, there, yeah, there's a there's this uh, the the Chinese is kind of interesting because he's described as qing bu zi which is his feeling qing. Could, he could not control or or tamp down himself mm. but as he was kind of in the in the car as he was in the carriage kind of pulling away and so therefore there was nothing he could do it says so he he had no choice but to he was forced to in the corner of his eyes leave his feeling or like something along those lines and then re being kind of only um, I, I I don't know what you made of that phrase because it's not sort of picked up so much in the... Mm. Yeah, he says, Hawk says, gaze back at her soulfully. But I got the feeling more of it being... Because it talks about the emotion being in the corner of his eyes. To me, I thought that he was perhaps crying here. Yes, right. He's uh, he, He's releasing his tears. He's releasing his emotion yeah. in the corner of his eyes. Maybe he is, yeah. He's... Uh, you know, sacrificing a tear on mm. uh, on this lass's behalf. Yeah, and and so it's it, we do feel a kind of uh, a sadness and a melancholy through him. But I also felt very strongly for uh, Artie, for girl too, because I, I I don't know she she's clearly quite sort of spirited as a person from the fact that. Whereas everyone else was very deferential, she was the one person who spoke up and said, you know, don't touch that, you're going to break it. Mm -hmm. And it does feel like this is probably one of the the few things that will happen in her whole life. Whoever knows, you know, who knows how long it will, or long or short it will be. It's one of the few kind of bright, interesting spots in her life. And she, I think, kind of knows that and she can see that it's coming to an end. And after this, she'll have to return to the kind of ordinary grind i suppose of uh of kind of peasant life yeah yeah maybe the fantasy then is kind of two ways then uh, def definitely definitely I, I i i i really see it that way i see that she you know this this bizarre vision kind of you know this unreal thing you know the people come down from heaven have just kind of breezed through their their little farmstead 
you know, looking like something out of a dream, and then they disappear off again. And and so I think that is one of the kind of dream like moments, both for Bao Yu, but also for for uh, Artie for Gal too. And so when Bao Yu goes back to look again, everything's gone. There's no there's no trace of her. So they proceed on to the Temple of the Iron Threshold, and there is. There doesn't seem to be a, a kind of traditional funeral as we would know it, but there seems to be a lot of kind of guests and things milling around. And consequently, you know, various people um, have to, you know, offer thanks and talk to the guests and, and all of the kind of that social side of things. Uh, and it seems like there are a lot of guests, and so it takes quite a long time for everyone to eventually kind of take their leave. Yeah, to like to filter out effectively, right? According to rank. Mm-hmm. So... The higher rank you are, the sooner you leave, uh, with the yeah. exception of people directly connected to the Jia clan. And so we 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 hear that you know a number of the family, including Lady Wang and Lady Xing, do return to the capital. Sorry, so that's Bao Yu's mother and, and aunt, respectively, mm-hmm. leaving Xu Feng to continue. Um, and they ask Bao Yu if he wants to come back with them, but no, he's having a good time in the country and he wants to stay with with Xi Feng. And uh, and so we hear that you know some guests some guests will stay at the the Temple of the Iron Threshold, and others prefer to stay elsewhere. The temple being a kind of private foundation um, of the Jia Clan, you know, so paid for by the by the Jia Clan itself, and providing rooms to its members, but. We get the impression that these are not the kind of most luxurious dwellings. And so those who can afford to stay elsewhere. And it's only those that can't really afford to that stay there. With one interesting exception that... Did you catch the... Uh, apparently the the maid of uh, Qing Keqing, Bao Zhu, Jewel in the Hawks translation, she actually is going to uh, sleep beside the coffin. And we remember from, I believe it was two chapters ago, she served in the like early funerary proceedings, she served the role of uh, pretending to be performing as uh, Chinka Ching's daughter. Yeah, she was she was made honorary daughter, wasn't she? Honorary daughter, and, and she had this uh, like performative mourning, and she was wailing. Uh, and so you see these, you see this really interesting, but uh, a bit strange like remnants of a deep kind of, I, I would not hesitate. I mean, I would hesitate a little bit, but we could probably characterize this as something feudal, you know, F-E-U-D-A-L, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I wanted to just just mention that because it is this, uh, this it, it, very small detail, but it's really interesting. It's quite bizarre. Yeah, you're right. I, we, we kind of skimmed over it. Um, but uh, anyway, Xifeng, Bao Yu and Qin Zhong all decide to stay elsewhere. So rather than staying at the Temple of the Iron Threshold, they go and stay at a place called Water Moon Priory or Wheat Cake Priory. Yes. Um, uh, Manto An. <clears throat> Manto An. Yeah. yeah. So um, Manto is is a kind of white bun um, that's that's popular in parts of China, right. and it's it, it, it's quite like uh, what we know as kind of like a bread roll in the in the West, I suppose, but it's steamed rather than baked so it doesn't really have a crust 
yeah. you know it doesn't have a brown crust in the same way it's it's kind of perfectly pure white yeah um, maybe it's good for breakfast I, I don't know like what do you think yeah yeah it's good for breakfast it's very it's relatively plain flavored so it's normally good for dipping in other things to absorb their flavor mm-hmm. okay um it, it did actually recall as i was reading this um uh, uh, like a much more modern counterpart uh which is the chinese author lu xun who he wrote predominantly in the in the kind of early oh i know you're thinking part of, of this 20th century mm-hmm. um yeah he had the very good short story called uh yao uh, meaning medicine yes um, yeah that's where, a that's a shocker <laughs> yeah it's a really good story but it's very kind of grim um and it's about a a, a couple whose young son is very sick with tuberculosis and to attempt to cure him they resort to a uh, a folk remedy which is a a mantle one of these uh wheat buns dipped in uh or soaked in fact in in blood right. and it's borderline cannibalism i mean yeah absolutely and of course it's i mean it, it doesn't expressly say it i can't i don't think but but obviously this is not never going to cure the boy mm-hmm. but what we what we find out is that or it's strongly implied anyway that the blood in which the mantle is soaked is the blood of some revolutionary mm-hmm. who's recently executed by the state. Right. So it's a kind of an, an interesting kind of reflection on sacrifice, yeah. uh, both yeah. in the like the material sense, but also mm. w- given its sort of uh, superstitious or uh, supernatural uh, valences. Right, and so and so, so Lu Xun, the who, who practiced as a doctor, he seems there yeah. to be reflecting on, you know, traditional uh, belief systems and the extent to which they uh, interact with, you know, this drive toward political and political economic uh, progress and development. Yeah, he seems to be saying very clearly to me, anyway, that the the folk and superstitious traditions are. Mm-hmm not merely an impediment but actually antithetical to progress capital p you know right right although progress i mean but sacrifice there is not completely you know it's it's almost like maybe you can sublimate sacrifice into sacrifice for a material or political goal Mm -hmm. right you know there's going to be another blood related uh uh, development in, in a moment now. Yeah, <laughs> come to think of it. Yeah, so 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 is that a good transition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, well, so they 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 get to Watermoon Priory, and Shifang goes to talk to the the abbess, the the nun in charge, who is called Euergesia, which we will come back to in a moment. Okay, I think we should talk about their names in a bit. But yeah, okay. But first, yeah, let's talk about blood. So as Shifeng asks why they haven't been coming around the 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 wrong household to the to the Jack you know family's home, because they do visit frequently, and in fact we've encountered one of their number in chapter seven, Sapientia, and the abbess Eurogesia says, "It's on account of Mister Hu's good lady," said the old nun. She has lately been brought to bed of a boy, and sent us ten tails of silver for a three day recital of the Lake of Blood Sutra by some of the sisters to purge the stain of childbirth. We've been so busy with the arrangement that we haven't had time to call. So what is the Lake of Blood Sutra? Okay, so I have it here. Um, so in the original Chinese, it's Shue Pen Jing. And so it's apparently an 
I'm getting my data here just off Wikipedia, so this is not the result of deep research. But uh, it's an apocryphal Mahayana Sutra of Chinese origin, dating back to the 12th or 13th century. It describes how Magdalayana, discipline of the Buddha, famous for his supernatural or magical powers, descended to hell to save his mother. He finds her in the company of women who are tormented by the hell wardens and are forced to drink their own menstrual blood. Uh, apparently, they are punished for this because the blood produced by their bodies is said to have polluted the ground and offended the earth gods and ends up in the rivers from which the water to make tea for holy men is drawn. Um, it's a completely bonkers thing to me. Like, this really kind of, like, knocked me for six. Um, there's really no uh, redeeming this particular practice, right? I, I, and, like, I, I, so you mentioned that it's apocryphal, uh, which is to say it's, you know, it's not attributed directly to the Buddha, it seems. Uh, I mean, yeah, but whatever. It's it, still it, a tradition, right? It, yeah, but it seems to be a more recent one, right? So, I mean, the Buddha lived something like 400 years BCE, and this is, right. what, uh, 16, 1700 years after right. that? Uh, so it's well, a yeah, much more millennia. recent. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I, I read something kind of... Um, I looked into this a bit because I was really kind of interested to know why there is this this particular attitude towards menstruation which is something entirely natural why it's associated you know why it's considered in 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 formal religion to be something um kind of dirty and um sort of like damaging to the sacred or offensive to the sacred um I mean, I looked into it, and this is actually something that spans across a lot of different religions. So, yes, in some, yes. in some, uh, what we might call folk traditions, essentially things outside of the large, big ones that we know. So, so the three Abrahamic faiths, outside of Hinduism, outside of Buddhism. So, it's kind of smaller folk ones. You do often have practices of women being um, required to kind of leave the the communal space and segregate in in some some other space like a, a separate building for example even within a lot of abrahamic traditions i i think you'll find versions of this will you not yeah absolutely so so i i looked up some of it so we've got leviticus chapter 18 verse 19 this is this is actually leviticus 18 is quite an interesting chapter because it's one which is a lot of rules about um uh sex and you know, things that you can and can't do. And so that says, do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period, quote unquote. And so Leviticus, I think, because it's Old Testament, is incorporated both into the Christian and the Jewish tradition. There's a something in the Quran that, uh, uh, again, uh, this is fascinating to me. Uh, apparently, the Prophet Muhammad was questioned concerning menstruation. And he said, it is an illness so let women alone at such times and go not into them till they are cleansed. And when they have purified mm. themselves, then go unto them as Allah hath enjoined upon, upon you. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's, it's in both religious and folk tradition, there is this obsession with menstruation and, and kind of dirt, you know? Um, Impurity. Uh... Yeah. I, I found something bizarrely in the British Medical Journal in 1878. 
So, okay. I mean, like very recently, there was, uh, I couldn't find the original source for this. This was from another article that I was reading. But apparently there was a claim in the BMJ that a menstruating woman could cause bacon to putrefy by her mere presence or something. I, 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 I'm kind of baffled by it. But yeah, there, there, there is just this pathology about it. Um, you know, I would maybe connect this to uh, this idea that like the connection between phobias and liminal spaces, right? Where you have, I mean, blood is usually we associate it with being inside the body. Uh, and so when you have something that's on the inside that is suddenly on the outside, uh, it's like it's broached a kind of barrier. And even if it's doing so naturally, uh, there's, mm -hmm. I, I think there might be this intuitive, yeah, it's sort of like phobia or uh, I'm not sure what the, a good word for it is, but like you have this, this like, this kind of like sprout, but from that you have, you can build this whole elaborate and unjustified ritual system almost. So it's like a, a sprout of evil almost. It's not like a, a good sprout that like Mencius talks about. It's a... You know, the same kind of uh, like sense of xenophobia, which then becomes, you know, systems of hatred mm -hmm. and racism. I wonder if it's the same kind of like building from a smaller thing to create this like almost like system. It's like ritual system of uh, exclusion. I think I would agree with that. I, 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 it's it's just bizarre to me because it's because it's defining something which is which is natural as falling into the category of falling into the category of of kind of shameful and unnatural and this if you read the hawks seems to be true not just of uh menstruation but the blood that comes from giving birth right so he refers to them doing this sutra to purge the stain of childbirth maybe another example would be um i mean the sort of uh prejudicial attitudes toward people who have had limbs amputated or who have extra toes or extra finger extra fingers even if you know you know even if the individual knows that you know these things are natural occurrences it's still i think for a lot of people difficult not to fixate on these um so-called imperfections to the extent that when you if you look back at like traditional confucian like f philosophy ruist uh, systems of ideology there really is this emphasis on you know you're not allowed to you know damage your own body because your body is supposed to be perfect and it's you're supposed to perfectly preserve it because it is a representation of what your parents gave you mm. and you know if the criminal is to be uh like physically marred because they have broken the uh the the, the unity of the community and sort of actually the taoist a reaction to that is that you know our, our sages sometimes have you know extra toes, or or are unclean or uncouth or improper in various ways, and that's kind of a reaction to this. Yeah, it's like it's like you base you base your moral system on these intuitions, but the problem is some intuitions are great, like the intuition to you know save a child from falling into a well. That's good. Yeah. But if the intuition is to assume that somebody who has an extra toe is a criminal you know that's not the kind of intuition that you want to be basing your like your moral system on. yeah that one is harmful uh, yeah and so yeah taking this like this phobia which may or may not be somewhat intuitive toward blood and then 
you know, transferring that on to natural forms of bloodletting, you know, such as menstruation, and then creating this whole system around uh, impurity, that's obviously not the proper way mm. to, to uh, construct an ideology. And that's kind of how, uh, how I would, yeah, how I would understand these kinds of occurrences, which, which really do seem to be fairly universal throughout historical, traditional forms of uh, society and community. Yeah, I guess that that's it comes from a, from a, some like ins, instinctual revulsion, I suppose. Um, maybe, maybe partially, but then amplified, right? It's just yeah, it's very. It was very bizarre to me to read that. Um, but, uh, anyway, anyway, I think I think we've probably spent enough time talking <laughs> yeah. about blood. I think that's um, fine.